0: against the machines.
1: This
2: is a the From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking.
0: Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to a new Billing 21 podcast. My name is Olivier Tienz. I'm joined with uh, Viola Routier. Hello. Hello, Viola. And uh, today we're going to talk about awe and learning. So we've already had the podcast, and we recorded with uh, many of our guests, and this was really interesting. Uh, what was the goal of the podcast, Viola? The
1: The goal of the podcast was to kind of understand what parts of learning need awe or how awe and learning play into each other? And um, this wasn't maybe a direct question, but the, the route that a lot of the, the the guests took was seeing how awe and schooling um, play into each other. So how can we include awe in a learning environment and just generally how, how the two go together?
0: Okay, and so so it was a really interesting conversation. By the way, we, we were are gonna warn our listeners that there it was we were interrupted a couple of times by different sounds. Building twenty one, our little studio is in the middle of our lab, and uh, sometimes we hear uh, you know kitchen is next next to the lab, so the studio, so sometimes we hear a little noise. So don't worry if you hear about it; it's just life going on at Building Twenty One. So. Do you have a sort of a summary and an idea? Can you give us or a listener sort of an idea of what they're going to listen to?
1: Yeah. Uh, So we started um, by asking what a learning environment was. Uh, And predictably, everyone had kind of a different idea about uh, on on the matter. But generally speaking, it was somewhere comfortable, both physically and mentally, Uh, somewhere that you can be inspired um, and th- this was kind of the, the, the first thoughts, and then someone brought up, well, these are all characteristics of a good learning environment, um, and so the rest of the conversation was kind of spent differentiating between a good and a bad learning environment, um, between a work and a learning environment, which were considered two separate things, uh, but generally speaking, a good learning environment is somewhere comfortable to some degree. Although there was also a good amount of debate on this, as uh, our listeners will hear. And, uh, and then we, we, we talked about comfort uh, and, and how much discomfort is needed to get a good idea. Um, how much comfort or safety is needed to be in a good enough mindset to be able to think of anything. The balance between the two. And then very interestingly, how awe and comfort are related, whether when you have a sense of awe, you are really comfortable or whether when you have a feeling of awe, it's just so overwhelming that it's not it's not a secure feeling. It can be a good feeling, but not necessarily a secure one. And uh, and then that also led um, to a discussion of what we want in or what we uh, a, a number of students and uh, just all, all our guests kind of wanted was smaller classes and generally just more interactions between people. So um, not the huge introductory introductory classes that we tend to have, um, not a disconnect between the students and the professors. But just more a sense of community, and and again, the, the the idea of comfort kept coming back. And I think the idea was, you want to be able to feel uh, connected and comfortable with everyone and everything around you to at least some extent, uh, in order in order to really be able to think in a in a productive and a and a pleasant way.
0: So, from your own point of view, uh, are you hopeful? Do you think we're going to get there? Do you think learning environments are going to improve in the future? I think so. I mean,
1: we—I I didn't live through this, obviously. But if I read st- uh, books written a hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, uh, the accounts of schools seemed pretty terrible. <laughs> um, even my my own parents' the accounts of, the, of their schooling when they were my eight, or when they were a bit younger than me uh, sound not ideal in a lot of ways, and. There's a lot of problems with today's schooling system, and I'm not I'm not saying that, that it isn't true, but I loved all of my all, all of my school. Um, and so I think that just the 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 different paradigms, the different ideas we have about education now, like elementary school and middle school, especially, a lot of the things were designed explicitly to be fun. I don't think that was the case a hundred years ago for for most uh of the the traditional schools there was probably a lot of exceptions but that was not generally the go-to uh idea. You, don't,
0: you don't need to go that far back
1: <laughs> yeah no exactly um and so i think just the fact that that was the primary not necessarily the primary goal but a big part of my early education uh, is already sign that things are changing and i don't see any reason to think that they'll stop changing
0: yeah, I think that the paradigm I shifted even from my own uh, from my own youth uh, to now the paradigm I shifted from you know even though it's still there uh, the the idea that pain is the driver of, of knowledge acquisition I think has been replaced by comfort maybe comfort or, or a passion beauty awe which are a very different thing from um, pain and, and suffering uh, which was a it's, a bit, it's been a big paradigm shift in the last 20, 30, 40 years. So hopefully we'll have another one soon. And hopefully this one will also concern the, uh, the physical nature of our learning environments, uh, which are usually... Uh, quite poor to say the least so mm-hmm. thank you uh, Viola so we'll let our listeners uh, listen to that conversation we had a number of guests do you remember their names?
1: Uh, yes we had uh, Claudia Rehart who's a uh, program assistant here uh, Darius uh, <laughs> um, uh Nikia Norbay uh, her friend Rainbow whose last name I'm not sure I know actually and uh, is Bahar Metin who's doing a project here. I think that's everyone, and yeah. my, myself, and you.
0: Yeah, I think I think that that's it. So they're all uh, either uh, alumni of Building Twenty One or uh, current uh, Building Twenty One fellows, or even the product, uh, program assistant like you and and uh, Darius and Claudia. Nikia, we're all uh, are all alumni of Building Twenty One, so uh, hopefully our listeners will like the discussion, and uh, we'll have a we'll have a new podcast soon. So thank you, everyone, and I uh, hope you'll enjoy the program. So, hello everyone, welcome to a new podcast from Building 21, and my name is Olivier Diense. Together with uh, many of uh, Building 21 great students, uh, some of them are actual fellows, some of them are alumni, and they work here, and we'll have an interesting discussion on uh, future learning environments, how effective they are, how interesting they are, what is the future of university. This is all part of our uh, longer-term series, thinking about education and the future of education, how can we make education better? So uh, let me just hand the microphone to Viola, who's going to lead us into that great discussion and maybe introduce everyone, too.
1: Um, Yeah, so I'm Viola. I graduated from anthropology and biology and now spend most of my time at Building 21. Um, And I'm joined by Darius.
3: Hi, I'm Darius. I. Uh, studied cognitive science and neuroscience at McGill. Now I work here with Viola for the past year.
2: And Nikia, I am um, just graduated from computer science at McGill, and I also work here with Viola and Darius. And is that?
4: Uh, I I graduated from psychology and sociology this May, and uh, I am doing a project at B twenty one this year.
1: So um,
0: one, one person is missing, Viola.
1: Oh. Yes, Uh, forgive me because she's not physically here. Uh, Claudia, would you like to introduce yourself?
5: Yes, hi, I'm Claudia. Uh, I'm doing a PhD in linguistics at the University of Toronto, and I also work at Building 21 as a staff member.
1: Thank you. Uh, and so as Olivia said, um, this podcast is a bit of a continuation of a discussion series that we have at Building 21 called Future of Learning, Future of University is the exact name, uh, varies a bit from event to event. And the idea is to to reimagine university education as as we have it now, basically to see what parts of it we really need to keep, what parts of it could change, what parts need to change. And all of the conversations and discussions and debates and arguments that go along with these questions. So we, we had a great discussion earlier this week about uh, learning environments. And so I wanted to start off uh, the, the podcast with asking everyone here what a learning environment means. Uh, so we can start with Nikia, maybe.
2: So I think for me, a learning environment is anywhere where... I feel motivated to learn, and I think a big part of that is comfort or where I feel comfortable learning, so that can be comfort in terms of physical comfort, so having it be not too cold, not too warm, having somewhere that's comfortable to sit with sunlight, but it can also be comfort as in knowing that there are places that I can go to if I get stuck or people who can support me, and yeah, I think that's, for me, what a learning environment is.
0: Let me ask you, Nikia, what's, what's the difference between comfort and safety?
2: For me, at least, I think I've been lucky enough in my life where I haven't thought too much about safety or it's not something that I've had to think about in terms of physical spaces. So I really only think of comfort. However, the difference is that if you're looking at comfort, you're not thinking about safety and safety. you're. It's not just uncomfortable or it's not just something where you'd rather be somewhere else, there is another level of you should not be there or it is it is unsafe for you to be there. And there is danger to you versus just unpleasantness.
1: Uh, Claudia, would you like to, to say what a learning environment means to you? Yes, um, I
5: think a learning environment, as Nakia said, is a place where I feel I can rely on others, on peers, in order to help me with things that I don't understand. Uh, For me, a learning environment is a collaborative space where I can build on others' ideas, where I can receive feedback on my ideas. Um, And it's also a space where I feel inspired, Uh, so a space that triggers those ideas to start with.
1: And how would you define being inspired? Um, it is complicated, but I think, hmm. Yes.
3: Um, I think uh, when I feel inspired, it feels like you hear something that your ears kind of perk up at. And you think, like, there's something here that could really be interesting or valuable or, or meaningful going down the line. And you might not necessarily know what that is yet, but you feel like if you pull on that thread... You're going to get somewhere interesting.
5: Yep. Yeah. Um, if I may add something to this, inspiration also requires there to be a space for ideas to happen. So let's say in a framework where everything is already determined and already certain, there is not really opportunity to feel inspired. But when there is uncertainty, when there is room for uh, new ideas or when there are problems for example that still need to be solved then I think inspiration can arise.
1: And so with that definition in mind you said that in a learning environment you need to be inspired or you need to be able to be inspired. Um, does that mean that in for example a lecture or not a lecture, say if you're you're doing an experiment in a lab and everything is already very clear what results you're supposed to get, how you're supposed to get there, would that still count as a learning environment? That's a good question. I think according to
5: our definition, no. It could count as a working environment where you have a certain task and you need to get it done. Um... But if everything is already laid out very clearly, if there is no room for encountering new problems and maybe solving those along the way, then there is not so much learning happening, according to me, if you're just executing a plan.
1: Okay, thank you.
4: Um, Isel? So, like, when, when I hear learning environment, I don't necessarily always think of, like, a positive place where learning and, like, inspiration is encouraged. I just... Think of um, an environment where you are instructed to learn. Uh, So any kind of school, any kind of university would technically be a learning environment. Good learning environment is like the distinction that I make. And for me, um, like for a good learning environment, I can't be too comfortable, but too uncomfortable either. There's like a very sweet spot somewhere in there. And uh, curiosity is encouraged and uh, social bonds are encouraged too, because uh, a lot of learning is uh, social as well. So a good learning environment to me is that.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I think you know, everything everyone's said so far, I agree, is an important part of a good learning environment. But for me, a learning environment is yeah, somewhere that you go to expecting to learn something, whether that's something that you care about or not. You know, even if you're going to, uh, i trying to think of my least favorite class, if you're going to molecular biology at 8.30 in the morning, maybe not super excited about what it is you will learn, but the expectation is that at least something new you will have learned. Um, in the same way, if I'm having dinner with friends, there's a very good chance that I'm learning something, but that is neither the, the main point nor is it what I'm expecting out of it. And so while it is an environment in which I could easily learn something, and I hope that it is, and very often it is the case, it's not what I would define as a learning environment.
0: Okay, so let, let me pick up on this. This is really interesting. So when you travel, is that a learning environment? When you work, be working for different reasons, not always to learn, but you're learning new skills. Is that a learning environment?
1: Not for me. It's an environment in which you learn, but that to me is distinct from a learning environment.
0: And the distinction would be what?
1: That the main point of a learning environment is to learn something. It's not a side effect of being in that place. I also wanted to pick up on that and ask, is it the case
5: that for a learning environment to be one, there needs to be a certain challenge and that comfort is not really a prerequisite, or rather, that there even needs to be a certain level of discomfort in order for learning to occur.
1: That's a good question. I think, well, is that you were saying that you need a certain level of discomfort? Does that is that purely physical discomfort, or does that extend to some amount of? mental discomfort as well.
4: I was I was thinking mostly in terms of physical, but I think it's just like a very personal thing because I get very sleepy if I'm too comfortable and it becomes like a battle for me, even if I'm very interested in the subject. But I think in terms of like mental discomfort too, actually, because a certain level of that kind of discomfort is where questions arise from. Um, and so that kind of encourages... Uh, people to ask questions, to be curious, to overcome that mental discomfort, so that like you're at the comfortable place of oh yeah I understand this now, or when you're doing problem solving in math class or something, there's like there is mental discomfort to a certain extent because if like, it's a particularly hard problem, but then if you get to solve it, then like the satisfaction you get from it is. Um, is a, like a big contribution to assessing how much you've learned how to solve that kind of problem.
2: Yes, I was just going to say, I think I agree where you need discomfort in that sense, but I think that's more discomfort from the content of what you're trying to learn versus discomfort from the environment. And I think it's important to make a distinction between those two.
0: So let me, uh, this is a really interesting topic. So two questions for all of you. Can, can you have positive discomfort and still feel safe? And at what point do discomfort becomes extraordinarily unpleasant? So it might be different in the sciences, right? Because you're dealing with things that in theory are less subjective in at least what they say about humanity. But in the humanities, it's it's a different, uh, it's a whole different issue here. So what's the, what's the limit of discomfort where suddenly it becomes
3: something that is an unpleasant experience or something that you would reject?
1: Darius, do you have any thoughts?
3: Um, I'm trying to think of a, w- a way to put it that's not just too much discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know with the, the, the theory of flow that's very popular now, there's this, this um, inverted U shape. So when you're yeah, when you're in the flow state where you're like in the zone doing what you know but also challenging yourself, um, it's kind of in the medium position between uh, being too easy and too difficult. I think when you're learning something new, you have to be a little bit above that. So a little bit more in in the space of being challenged. Um, But I think there's there's also rhythms to it of like being challenged, but not being stuck in that state for too long. You need time to relax.
5: I agree very much with what Darius said. Uh, And I think the level of discomfort where you start feeling unsafe is when there is no margin for errors and where the stakes feel too high. Uh, So for example, uh, maybe the discomfort you feel in an exam where you don't know the solution to the problem and you're stuck on it, Um, maybe that's where the discomfort turns into anxiety, fear, and...
1: Yeah, I agree. I think maybe having having something be kind of a, a be all or end all, is when it starts to be too uncomfortable to really learn something at that point. Um, So I don't think I've ever heard someone say, oh, I learned so much from that exam. It's you learn stuff for the exam. You learn things from your classes. But the exam itself isn't really a learning experience.
0: It's not meant to be either.
1: No, no, not at all. But I think maybe then that's... You know, it still has to do with learning. It has to do with things that you've learned. But maybe that's the level of discomfort at which it stops being a learning experience or a learning environment and starts being something else.
0: So to all of you, do you think that, uh, let's let's be precise, that your experience in higher education has been comfortable? Iselle is saying no, like, really passionately.
4: <laughs> no, it's because... Um, at least, if I had to compare, so I did two degrees, psychology and sociology, and psychology at McGill is a lot bigger department than sociology, and so all almost all of my psychology classes were huge. Um, all intro psychology classes are like that, but even like the higher level psychology courses, there's at least 100 people, and I think you kind of get subsumed by the masses of students at that point. Um, and uh, there is usually less time for questions. Um, and so it's, it's a bit less of like a problem solving or challenges. It's more like information is thrown at you or is that like on the screen and it is completely up to you uh, to, you know, pay attention or just um, learn by yourself. I've had a lot of like very engaging instructors for psychology. That is not like that. But in terms of like a learning environment, Uh, Being part of that, like a huge crowd, which affects um, how a lecturer gives lectures, what the content is, and how you also um, interact with your peers, whether to study or to like form social bonds, it's been overall suboptimal compared to my sociology courses, which were very, very much smaller and felt more like a environment that uh, welcomed questions and curiosity and discussions rather than psychology. Psychology, you don't really have discussions most of the time.
2: I think for me, and this may be very specific to my degree and, and the reasons why I went into my degree, I think it was challenging, but in a good way where Part of the reason I picked computer science was because I discovered that I really like math, but I was kind of too scared to go into math because I thought it would be too hard. So I was like, okay, computer science, I have enough math where I can still feel challenged. And I think in like computer science classes and math classes, they are, especially the introductory level ones, there are, there are very big classes. It's difficult to get help and it's not The best compared to I took linguistics courses, which are usually smaller. And like as Elle said, there is that closer sense of community and everything like that that I think really does make a difference. However, I think for me, I think I was able to compensate for that because I think office hours were a big part where like usually in almost all of my classes, I was like one of the only people who would be at office hours. And I think because I would regularly go to those, I was able to ask questions and I was able to have those discussions that I didn't get from the classes, which were usually quite big. And for me, there was a big sense of accomplishment just in doing something that I didn't think I would be very good at. So I think just looking back on that, it does make it seem like it was worthwhile.
0: So Darius and Claudia, both of you have done uh, uh, graduate degrees. uh, And in theory, you're supposed to be in smaller, more intimate uh, settings, uh, learning environments. Was that your experience, and did you feel that the smaller learning environment was more conducive to learning and a better learning environment?
3: Darius? Um, It's a bit hard to answer for me. I had my my master's degree during uh, 2020, 2021. So, yeah, there were smaller smaller seminar classes between, like, 15 and 25 people, but um, I ended up attending very, very few uh, as they were being given. I, I watched them later. And for me, I think most of my classes were, th- I had three, and they were three-hour blocks. And for me, uh, three hours of Zoom is uh, un- completely unmanageable. <laughs> so that's kind of, that was kind of a very different environment that maybe we can talk about too. But um, in, in upper-year undergraduate courses, we we're, were still in person at the time. Um, there was a lot of small classes, and that, that was really in- much more enjoyable than... 150 students or 600 students
0: and why is that
3: Um, there'd be a lot more discussion you knew everyone in the class and be the same faces all the time you could kind of maybe pursue threads between lectures with the same people and so kind of like growing together a little bit you know in in terms of um, understanding this this topic or this discipline
0: how about you Claudia?
5: Yeah, I had a similar experience uh, to Darius during my master's. It was also during the pandemic. So that was different. Uh, I think learning in person is much easier. And perhaps because you can build a trust relationship. And I feel like that is crucial to learning, uh, having an environment where you're not afraid of judgment, where you can make mistakes um and now starting my phd and finally being able to have classes in person uh, and smaller classes as well i find it's a very different experience Uh, there is much more incentive to participate to ask questions uh, as i said without fear of being judged because most of the times you get to know the people in your classes and yeah in, in that sense it's very different i would say one of the challenges for me since uh that's what we were talking about before, uh, with respect to academia in general, is having these fixed uh, frameworks where you cannot really do things in your own time because you have deadlines. And yeah, I, I, I don't know how conducive to learning that is. It probably helps at the same time to have a little push in the back. But um, yeah, I don't know what you guys think about deadlines in learning environments.
1: I think this goes back a bit to the question of discomfort where, as you were saying, deadlines are useful because if I think about projects that like, weren't for school, just were things that I wanted to do for myself, but I didn't have a deadline for them. There's a lot of projects that I, either I started or I've been thinking about for years and never actually got around to doing any of them. So there is definitely something I think for a lot of people having a deadline is very important to at least push you to do something. Or the same way, you know, if you have a, a final paper due at the end of the semester, a lot of profs will have some deadlines throughout the semester for a first draft, for a second draft, for a proposal. And those are often very useful because otherwise, speaking for myself, but I think for a lot of other students, you would end up writing the paper in the last week of classes where you've had three months to work on it. At the same time, when it's either too many deadlines or it's a, a deadline that's too soon, or when you have just, you know, a deadline for five classes that happen to follow around the same time, the way midterms are often set up, uh, the way final exams are often set up. Um. That's your uh. friend, <laughs> 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 Um We might have another guest joining us in a moment. Um. So I, I think the problem with deadlines is when there's too many of them or they're, they're too stressful for some reason. And I w- my, my idea was maybe if we had some kind of a little bit more of a floating deadline, like it's due anytime during this week, that might work better. But to quote an old professor of mine, uh, work fills up the time that it's given. So, you know, if you have a week to do something and it only takes you an hour... It'll still probably be handed in at the end of the week because you have that whole week to work on it. And even though you could have done it if the deadline was the next day, somehow that work will just expand to fill the time that you have.
0: How about your learning environment, Viola? How about your, uh, um, you know, your undergraduate classes? The one, the five hundred. You took some five hundred level classes.
1: A uh, five hundred level? No, I took a few four hundred level. Um, so. Honestly, I can't say that I had uncomfortable experiences. Did you have comfortable
0: experiences?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, It surprised me, actually, because I went to a very small high school where some of my classes I was either the only student or one of three or something. And I was a little bit scared when I came to McGill. I was like, you know, there's 600 people intro classes. I don't know how this is going to work. And I was completely fine from the first class. Um, I think for me it was because... I was fine asking questions in the middle of a, of a large lecture, um, and I was happy to go to office hours and things, so uh, a lot of what might have made it uncomfortable weren't, wasn't a problem. And then, yeah, with some of my smaller classes, it was a, v- a very comfortable experience. Either I had a lot of friends in the class or the prof uh, was um, very nice or, you know, it, it was a discussion-based class. Um, it was just very easy to learn in those environments. But honestly, even the big lectures with the PowerPoints and the prof at like the bottom of three flights of stairs was fine with me as well.
0: Okay, so thanks. We, we have a guest uh, who just came in with a, I think she's surprised that she's going to participate. No one told her that she'd be part of the podcast. Why don't you take the seat and introduce yourself?
6: Okay, hello. Um, Hi, I'm Rainbow,
1: and I just walked into this. Yeah, so uh, to give you a little bit of context, first of all, welcome. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Then uh, we're talking about learning environments and what makes them comfortable or not, and how much discomfort is good versus counterproductive for learning. And Rainbow, what what is your background?
6: Yeah, so I'm a student. I guess I'm taking a year off. Um, I actually just came back from England. I was doing a study abroad there. And um, I've actually gone to four universities now. I started at Carleton University as an undeclared student. And then I went to Ryerson as a social work student and now I'm at York as a theater student, so I've switched up a lot. And then, yeah, I just spent um, a semester at Leeds University as a theater student as well. Um, Yeah, and now I'm kind of taking a break, having some breathing room before I finish my degree, or I don't know, we'll see.
1: And if it's not too personal a question, uh, what made you change so, so many times? Was there a particular reason or? Yeah, well, straight out of high school, I
6: had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew a lot of what I didn't want to do, Um, so I cut off a lot of things, and then that left me with, like, a little handful. It was either the arts or, like, something to do with people and helping people, so I thought, okay, I'll do maybe social work, so I spent my first year at Carleton taking all the social work classes, and I liked them, so I was like, okay, you know what? I'll do this, and then I transferred to Ryerson, and... That was an experience. Um, It was, I found it very hectic living in downtown Toronto. I liked my degree a lot, but it was difficult because I was just learning about how there's so many barriers to actually helping the people I wanted to help. So I was like, okay, you know what? I think I need to do something that's gonna bring me more joy. Then I veered off into theater and then I just started studying there. Though I love theater, I was very, um, I was kind of shocked to realize that it wasn't at all the degree that I thought it would be. But then that's why when I went to Leeds University and everything was open, I was like, whoa. That, and yeah, so that's how it's kind of gone. And now I'm here.
0: (laughs) So this was a really interesting comment, right? Your degree wasn't what you thought it would be, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, it was sort of my experience also. Was that everyone's experience? And if so, what did you expect your degree to be?
3: Um, I think I had an interesting case because I came in without really any expectations. Uh, I kind of just thought the name of the program sounded cool. <laughs> and it was a really That's cool program. So uh, I, th- I think I got lucky um, in cognitive science. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Uh, and part of that was, was uh, kind of like you were saying, being able to explore a bunch of different topics. It was very, very liberal in that sense.
1: I had kind of a similar experience, at least uh, for anthropology. um, The reason I went into anthropology in the first place was because I got accepted into the Faculty of Arts and Science, and I knew that I wanted to do biology for the science part, and I had no idea what to choose for art. And so I was looking through the list uh, of possibilities with my dad, and there weren't really that many that sounded interesting. At first, I was hesitating with German, but then I was told that Faculty of Arts and Science wasn't just when you couldn't make up your mind. Um, So I thought maybe finding a connection between German and biology would be a little bit difficult to justify to any relevant authorities. Um, And so then I saw anthropology, I asked my dad what what it was, he vaguely explained it, which is more than most of my professors have done, actually. Um, And so I said, okay, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, So anthropology, I didn't have that many expectations for. On the whole, it was more or less what I was expecting for biology, at least. What I found a little bit disappointing was how little hands-on there was. I took a couple of methods classes or a couple of labs, which were quite interesting, and I enjoyed those very much, but especially in anthropology, but a good deal in biology too, I was a bit disappointed by how much reading and writing about stuff that had already been done we had to do relative to actually coming up with our own things um, or doing hands-on things and I I finished my degree a little over a year ago now and I haven't I imagine I'll do a master's at some point but I haven't thought about it too much yet because I really wanted to do something hands-on to kind of make up for the imbalance uh, during my degree.
6: Can I ask a question about that? Yeah, and of course. In
1: anthropology, is there
6: not field work? Like, do you not have to do a practicum or something like that?
1: No. So. Oh.
0: <laughs> not at McGill. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: so first of all, I imagine it depends a lot on the university. Yeah. Then there is so, so in North America, archaeology falls under the domain of anthropology. Mm. I think in Europe, it tends to be more in uh, in classics. Um, so if you're doing archaeology specifically, there are some opportunities for a, a field work. One of, the, one of the practical classes I took was archaeological methods, um, which, was, which was a very fun class. Uh, but otherwise, it really depended on the professor. So I had a couple of professors where we did do, not like field work, but our own projects um, and ethnography, actually it, it fits with the conversation. Going to a place where we felt uncomfortable for an hour and just taking notes. Um, So projects like that. Sorry. uh, Yeah, no, no, a a random metro stop that I'd never been to before. (laughs) Okay, nice. (laughs) Um, And so it really depended on the prof. Same with biology. There's a couple of labs you have to take. Um, There was one field class I was supposed to go on, but then it got canceled uh, because it was in 2020. Um, But yeah, no. Otherwise, there's very little hands-on.
3: So I feel like in terms of discomfort in, in, in your studies, there are times when it's more uncomfortable. There are times even if your degree is, is nice overall, it's very uncomfortable. And like, I guess what can get you through that is like your reason for coming to study in the first place, like your reason for being in this learning environment. Um, so do you all feel like you had or have a clear reason? And did that help uh, in the times when it was like too much discomfort?
4: Well, I, um, I, I that applies mostly to like m- most of my psychology classes because to answer like both questions at the same, same time, I got into McGill with a psychology major and a minor in sociology and anthropology. Anthropology got left behind pretty quickly because I realized I didn't understand a thing, uh, and sentences didn't make sense, um, and then. Um, I was I was disappointed with psychology because uh, of how much it was focused on the neuroscience aspect of it and not like the the mind social or personality based side of it and uh, I was able to you know personalize it to an extent but all the required like required courses four out of five of them are neuroscience based um, and then I kind of got roped into doing an honors in sociology. I took this one class, and I really liked it, and I was at my professor's office hours every week, and he was like, Maybe you should, <laughs> like, you keep asking questions. Why don't you research them yourself going to, uh, um, going to honors? Um, but you know, like in terms of discomfort, it was always like the, the psychology classes that I was like, why do I have to learn any of this? For me, that was the main discomfort, Uh, That was presented because I knew that I had, I was going to have nothing to do with neuroscience in the future. I'm not like, it's not to say that neuroscience or like cognitive science, obviously they're very important aspects of psychology. But that's not, I know for a fact that I am not going to go into that field. And so I was kind of put off by the fact that I had to learn so much of it. I had to learn how the eye works four different times. And you know what? I still don't know because I only passed the class. I only, like, I just wanted to be done with it. Um, so, like, that was my main discomfort. And just, like, as long as, like, I passed through it, I just need to do it. And I, like, as someone who has a history of being an academic perfectionist, it was hard just, like, aiming just to pass and not to be the best in class. Um, but, yeah, once I got done with, like, any of those courses, the courses that I took for myself, like Human Sexuality and its Problems, Human Motivation, Inter-to-Personality, those were all like fantastic classes, despite the the class size, despite I had to take one on Zoom, and, um, and the instructors are fantastic as well.
2: I guess for me, I think in a way the reason was part of the discomfort, because for the most part, I was, like I said before, kind of taking it just because I kind of wanted to see if I could do it, honestly, and like for the challenge, but I didn't really know why in the long term. And I think that was really difficult for me because I was kind of like, I'm just doing this, but why am I doing this? Because it's a lot of time, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of effort. And I think, especially in computer science, there's so many people who knew exactly what they wanted to do afterwards. They're like, I want this job, I want to be a software engineer, I want to do that. And I think not having that reason why was, caused me the discomfort throughout the degree more so than the degree itself
1: it's interesting because i had a similar experience where i came in to mcgill knowing what i wanted to do i wanted to be a zoologist and then by like the end of my second year i decided that i didn't want to be a zoologist and i still haven't really figured out what i wanted to be <laughs> but i i had so like in that regard i i didn't really know what i wanted to do and i agree especially in biology especially in anthropology but i think in a lot of fields Almost everyone at McGill was going to go do a PhD, was going to go do their thesis on something, and I was like, I don't, I don't want to do that. Um, so I didn't really know what to do, but that was never part of the discomfort. If anything, I just kind of accepted that, yeah, I don't know right now, but the classes I'm taking are interesting, so probably they'll be useful at some point in my life, and in the meantime, I'm enjoying it. So somehow not having uh, like the motivation uh, behind it didn't affect the discomfort too much.
0: So it's probably a perfect uh, segue to maybe the, the sort of the final question, which was supposed to be your first question.
1: <laughs> yes, um, actually, I, I, was, I was thinking about how to transition to it, and I think I think I figured it out. So we talked a lot about how discomfort can play into learning. And I was wondering when we think about the idea of awe, so you know, something being so amazing, something so striking that you you can't think of it, can you feel that? when you're not comfortable? And so I guess part one of the question is that, and then part two is, is it then possible to have that kind of experience in a learning environment, however we define that at the beginning? Um, And how how do we get there? Claudia?
5: Yeah, that's a very good question. I think both of moments where I felt comfortable And felt awe, and moments where I felt less comfortable and felt awe too. Um, For the second category, I would say when I was in China teaching English illegally to young three year olds, uh, I felt a lot of discomfort. Uh, And yet, in some of those moments of like profound alienation and um, (laughs) feeling like I didn't belong at all where I was. Uh, all could arise from, I don't know, looking up at the tall buildings or noticing something beautiful in the midst of the discomfort. And then, of course, there's also moments where, I don't know, you are outside nature, there's no threats, nothing to be afraid of, and you are struck by something beautiful like the sky or a hill. And I don't know, but I feel like moments of uh, are not, inherently comfortable either and maybe when you transition from being in a beautiful outdoor space to feeling awe there is a slight discomfort that is uh, taking place but it's not very difficult to experience it in the sense that it's it's not unbearable it's almost pleasant um but maybe it has to do with the wonder the uncertainty Uh, The feeling of being small or powerless, in a sense. I don't know. Uh, It would be interesting to hear what you guys think about this.
4: Yeah, uh, I think for me, awe in a learning environment does not come from the physical space because, especially if if I'm like so engrossed in the in the the class or like the subject that I'm learning, or it's just like the, the my surroundings don't matter usually. Um, unless I don't know, I have to do it like on a pile of nails. Maybe that might <laughs> hinder that. Um I think the in terms of discomfort, there's that like the men- mental discomfort. Um, you kind of have to work to get that sense of awe. like i I remember like my statistics classes, which I unfortunately never got that sense of awe because I didn't really understand what I was doing. But in high school, for example, when learning how to, like, solve a math problem, like, struggling so much, and then it just, like, clicks, and it makes sense, and you're like, oh, my God, <gasps> that's how it works, and it is so satisfying, and it's so cool, and you want to keep having it, but you have to work towards it. Um, it also, you know, um, I think you also need to have, a, like, a certain interest in that subject, because then you have also less motivation to work towards it, Um If it's not an interesting subject, then even if something clicks, I'm like, okay, good for you, I guess. (laughs) And uh, but then, especially if I'm very interested in a subject, and I learn something like new, or like I ask a question, and like I am much more likely to have that sense of awe, and it's just like a it instigates more questions. Because then you want to know more about it, or like it inspires you about something else that is kind of connected, or even completely like tangential to it, and it just keeps going. It's like an avalanche of awe. Like as long as it um, perpetuates that curiosity, uh, and a lot of that depends on the instructor. Um, yeah, like inaccessible instructors are like even if you you are very interested in the subject, even if something like clicks, if the instructor does not nurture that kind of environment, then like your sense of awe is like, oh. <laughs> oh
6: my God. <laughs> Thank you.
2: I think for me I very much agree with what Iselle said and what Claudia said, but I think at least personally, I don't relate awe directly to discomfort or comfort. For me it's more about expectation. Like I think for me, I feel awe in those moments when I maybe see something or feel something or interact with something that I'm not expecting that's outside of my realm of expectations and I think for me those are the biggest moments of awe and and that I think tying back to my last answer when I didn't really have a reason for why I was doing my degree and um, well as most people here know I really like sand (laughs) and um, (laughs) sand mining and I didn't think I would be able to do that at all or look into that at all because I didn't really have a geography background or other backgrounds that are more tied to that but when I realized that I could use computer science to look into that it wasn't something I was expecting and I think there was this type of feeling of awe of just being like oh wow I can do that that's that's awesome this is actually something that yeah I can do and so I think all that being said for me it doesn't matter too much whether or not I'm comfortable or whether or not I'm uncomfortable I think that that maybe more relates to the degree of awe I might feel but I think just to feel awe that is very much tied to expectations.
3: Um. I'm thinking of uh, the the guest that we had, Paula Williams, last year, and she she gave this model of like uh, awe often happens when you find yourself kind of like small in the face of something like vast or something really complex, like something much greater than yourself, and that can be very unsettling or disturbing, or it can be it can instill a sense of awe if you kind of like settle into this acceptance of you of that predicament. Um, And, uh, I think I can kind of apply that to some things in, in, in school. Like, uh, I think when, so there's the visual system, which is kind of a drag, but (laughs) learning about how the cochlea worked for the first time, how we, how we decompose frequencies and, you know, this little, um, piece of bones and calcium or whatever, um, yeah, I had I had no idea how that could work beforehand, and when, and when it was also, when it was kind of laid out, and how you know we use this super complicated structure to do this like uh, to do this process. I don't know. For me, it was like the trying to picture all the the evolution of life that went into like creating this thing. It was kind of crazy. Um, yeah, so uh, I think that kind of model can apply.
6: Rainbow. Yeah, I think. I really agree with Nakia and everything that everyone said, but um, in the sense that I feel like it doesn't matter about discomfort or comfort for me, but it's more um, feeling like I've discovered something, like it's a discovery. And I feel like I can kind of manipulate myself to feel like I'm always discovering something, and so I feel like I can put myself into a state of awe just if I have the intention for it. yeah, so I feel like every every classroom, every person, every interaction you have, there can be something to discover there, and that can fill you with some sort of awe or wonder. Um, so I feel like it's really on the person. So in terms of, like, in a classroom setting, I think it's all really dependent on the person, even if the instructor is super enthusiastic, which really does help. I think, really, if they have the awe, then it's contagious, so that's good. but. I think even in those super good environments, conducive environments, it's still really dependent on the person and whether or not they're really like looking or wanting to discover something or searching for that knowledge. Yeah, I think it's really on the person themselves.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, and I, I think you're right that it depends both on the person but also, in this case, on an instructor Um I think the, the moment of all I had during my university degree that, like, I think back on and laugh because it's very funny, although it was quite moving at the time. Um, my cell biology professor showed us a video of an amoeba sending out, uh, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I, I think it was an amoeba. Um, basically, it's a collection of cells, and if that collection of cells can tell that they're dying, that they're in an unsafe environment, they'll form a sort of stalk with a little bud at the end. And basically release that bud through the stalks. It'll grow, make a little blob, and then release the blob, in the hopes that the blob will go to a better uh, a better place. And so basically, the cells that stay behind are sacrificing themselves for this other s- blob of cells that will do better. And I think it was in part the music that was behind the video that he showed us. It was in part how like well he described got. I started to cry, like in the middle <laughs> of my class at like I don't know eleven in the morning watching an ami bud sending. I was just crying because it was, it felt so beautiful. I think that was a little bit a combination of the two. I was already, I was like, oh, it's a blob of cells. That's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and then everything else just kind of contributed to it. Olivier, did you have any thoughts?
0: I could speak for hours about, uh, but listening to all of you, I think to me, yes, discovery is part of it. Discomfort. I can think of a moment where I was in nova scotia and we were in a very very remote place and i looked up in the sky and i could see the, the milky way and it's all its depth and i felt both awe and extremely uncomfortable uh, it felt oh, very overwhelming it was beautiful but i've never forgotten that moment uh, beautiful and overwhelming and you know, that same at that same time I also one day i was sitting on the balcony it was a large uh terrace and i could see like this blob of red stuff on the corner so i went to what the hell is this it was a, a spider's nest that i just that was just born and it was all red and it was all these fibers and all these beautiful spiders around it was just beautiful but all this to say i think for me awe is often um and it's the same for learning is when i suddenly discover something that's in equilibrium when suddenly something holds perfectly in place and I think f- your, your story with the amoeba, amoeba is, is, is kind of that, right? It's like a beautiful, perfect structure that suddenly releases something that that for me is, is awe. I haven't experienced that often in my learning environment, but often enough that I wanted to continue. So that would be it for today. Uh, thank you very much to all of you. Thank you, Claudia, uh, in the greater Toronto area. Uh, thank oh, you- thank you. Thank you, well, Nikia, Viola, who led this, Darius, and Rainbow. And Rainbow, thank you so much. And we'll have another Building 20 Podcast very soon. Thanks.